This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Evan. Hello, I'm Terrence. And we're going to talk about uh, World of Talent by Philip K. Dick, first published in Galaxy Science Fiction, October 1954. Uh, I went back and listened to your episode on this, Evan, and I believe the word you used was masterpiece. Well, maybe it wasn't masterpiece, but it was it was very high praise. Um, yeah, I, I like the story. I don't. I I really didn't like this story, and then I I went back. And listen to it again, and I think part of it was I was very distracted um, by some just copyright stuff that was <laughs> came up yesterday, and I was really angry and thinking about that in the background of my head. And it and yet it starts off really well. I think this story starts off really well with what I assume is like an autistic son wandering around his own house, and then. Um, I listened to your your podcast and uh and then I listened to the story again and I think it's actually pretty good. It's just it doesn't have any humor, which I really really That's my favorite part of Philip K. Dick, really. I mean, other yeah, than ideas. I saw some humor. Big Noodle? Big Noodle. Yes. Is that humor? Funny, dropping candy from from the space? I guess. Or from out of nothing and the fighting between the the, the husband and wife. That, that was kind of well, sad, but yeah, not a whole lot of of humor. It's not. It's. I, I think this must have been a novel he was thinking of. There's so much packed in here in terms of plot. Mm-hmm. This no, it feels novel novel like, doesn't it? And it's not even. Yeah, that, it's think, not that even. It's 42 pages or 40 pages, mm-hmm. something like that. I guess one one thing I really like about this is I. I guess when I was recording that or. or I was thinking, because that's what I was doing in those early stories, and I was seeing all these mutant stories, mm-hmm. and I was kind of putting them together. Mm-hmm. And I think this, along with, uh, is it Simon Hill, my daughter, both are, we really took a step to kind of world building with these mutants and seeing how they would fit in a larger context. Some of his earlier stories, like The Golden Man or The Crawlers, are much more, are much more smaller, more contained stories about the tension between the state and the mutants. And and here he really builds up the the mutant as a significant threat, and which I think he you know that's kind of common throughout a lot of his writings is the the mutant is, is something we really should fear as something that is going to replace humanity. Well, and that's something they want to do, right? That that's certainly the theme. I think of the Golden Man and the Crawlers. The Crawlers in a in a little. Have you read that story? I have. I haven't. Yeah. The it's, it's, that's, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, it's these these mutants are like they're aborted kind of fetuses, basically. Yeah, right. Yeah, and they but they actually end up do even though it's a more it's not like the Golden Man, who's really a much more existential threat. This is, seems a much more more mundane threat, but still, at the end of the story, it is going to replace humanity. That's the implication that these crawlers are building up a whole civilization underground. I felt a lot of that cruelty in here as well. Like there's the, the relationship between the husband and the wife, and the, especially the wife just being so, uh, difficult, I guess is the polite way of putting it. Um, Terrence, what, what, what did you, is this your first read on it? Yes, this is my first read. I, I 
I liked it. I quite liked it. It's it's full of um, interesting ideas, mm-hmm. and um, I think uh, I thought of it in relation to um, the extract uh, that you posted by um, John W. Campbell ah, the edit- about editorial yeah note right. Yes, talking about Jack Williamson's um, new at the time. Uh, story, The Legion of Probability, which later was renamed as The Legion of Time. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting that he was talking about mutants, Campbell was talking about mutants, and he meant the stories. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then I thought, because um, one of the things uh, in the story is um, what is a, a, a real mutation, a big mutation, and you get a difference between the tele- telepaths, the precogs, and the reanimators, and so on. They're sort of small mutations. Once you get to the the metahuman mutation of of Tim and the people who can um, travel through time and change everything. So, um, and Philip K. Dick did this story was itself a mutant story because um, he published it in Galaxy, mm-hmm. of course. He mutated away from the John W. Campbell model where um, uh, psi, uh, people with psi powers uh, are, are good in some way. And uh, Philip K. Dick was, in fact, diagnosing the, the Nazi side of um, John W. Campbell, <laughs> uh, yeah. saying that after the Holocaust, uh, you, can't have, um, you, you can't have this naive idea of the Superman. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, was- it, it's interesting because when you read that article, uh, that editorial thing, it's not it, 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 it. We read it as mutants, like actual creatures, right? Like I was thinking, yes. oh, he's talking about Slan, which comes out That's two years later, right? Um, and it's which is basically the perfect example of what Campbell he, when he when he got that in his hands, he's like. This is the future. No one can write about the future of humankind without talking about Psy, right? And I'm like, oh my God, you idiot, right? Cause True. that's my problem kind of with this story is that this is, this isn't science, right? Yes, there's nothing genetic or, or Darwinian about, um, uh, these sort of developments. Um, uh, all the, the, the scientific reasoning is, is not true. Yeah, no, but it, like the like the just psi powers, you know. Like you remember the beginning of uh, the movie Ghostbusters, where he's got those deck of card that deck of cards, and Bill Murray's testing uh, uh, yeah. some buxom young lady, right? And, and every time she gets one wrong, he says she got it right because he's trying to butter her up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is, is that is uh, was a phenomenon, right? In the twentieth century, is is that people thought that. Yeah, we're investigating psychic powers, and and it could be a thing. And if we, right, and it turns out that that's a like there's just absolutely no evidence for it, right? That it's all bullshit. And so this is a story that responds to uh, Slan and a bunch of other stories where telepathy is a is a thing, right? And yet, um, I love the X Men. Right. I think that the X-Men is just brilliant, not because it's science fiction, but because it's such a good allegory. I don't think Slan, I think Slan is a terrible allegory. 
I think it it's it's very much uh, not that I think uh, John W. Campbell was a fascist. I don't think he was a fascist. I think he was a real fucking idiot. Um, I think he had some terrible uh, racist ideas. Um, and more importantly, he was a chauvinist, right? Like just, just, uh, you know, I'm on my, my own team and his ideas are broken. Um, and that's why he falls for such idiot stuff as the Dean drive and Dianetics and all that shit. Um, on the other hand, um, Slan said, right, is taken up by people as sort of a, um, oh, we, the readers of science fiction, are super geniuses. <laughs> this is what I tell my students. I'm a super genius. You want to be a super genius like me? You got to read all the books. Because <laughs> when we play, oh, I have a game, uh, I play with them as a reward called Isaac Asimov's Super Quiz. And, uh, as long as I exclude the sports category <laughs> and the, uh, and the movies category, because it's movies from like 19, 1980 and earlier. Like, they wouldn't be able to do those. Um, I, I know like tons of the answers, right? Just cause I've been around and I've read a lot of books. Um, so I, but I don't take myself seriously when I say I'm a super genius, right? But Campbell did. And a lot of the other people who are reading Slan, they, they thought, yeah, that's, that's, if Slan is not science fiction, as an imagination of what the future is, then uh, we, the people who can vision uh, rocket ships landing on the moon, are those people. It's a metaphor for that, right? And Dick's story here is, well, no, I'm going to take it more seriously, like genetically, right? As in, if it is a mutation, then it'll mutate in all sorts of different directions. And that homo superior that we get uh, that tension in Homo Superior we get in in X Men and um, is played with in movie like Deadpool where he hangs out with other mutants right and sort of makes fun of it. Uh, that is really cool, but it's not. Um, it's only best seen as a metaphor, not as a as a kind of working out of an, of scientific ideas. Philip K. Dick here and and Campbell um, and a uh, Gold right. H.L. Gold, he actually wrote under the name Campbell. I got, I don't know if you guys saw that tweet as well. Um, no. he didn't write under John W. Campbell's name, but he, he wrote stories in Astounding, um, that were in the mold of what John W. Campbell would, would have been writing as well. And his magazine is a reaction, I think, to John W. Campbell's just sort of like stodginess of, as to what what he's focusing his writers on, right? And so, so I, I, I see why this fits in there, but it, to me, it, it, it just didn't, it wasn't a great, great story. Unless we sort of, and uh, that is, a world of talent isn't a great, great story. Unless we sort of analyze his own psychology, Philip K. Dick's own psychology. Cause I can't, I kept thinking this is his, it's gotta be his son, his son's, uh, you know, Got some sort of mental, uh, disability or something. And, and Philip K. Dick is looking at it and then he's thinking about games. Another theme that comes up. Um, it's, it's actually really nice that it's in the art right at the beginning of the story. You guys notice the big chess piece? Yes. Um, and then when, when we get to that ending, which I think is a pretty damn terrific ending actually, other than, um, 
<laughs> I don't know what it means in the after. Uh, what what's going to happen next? I have no idea. But um, I just think it's really interesting to think of it in the context of Philip K. Dick's life. You know, like what's going on? What's going on there? Why is why? Obviously, he's having marriage problems. <laughs> they disagree about what to do about their son. Should we put him in a special school? And then they go to somebody's house and have a party, and they bring their kid with them because got to bring the kid and and the kids. Um, you know, not participate, like just the way the whole story opens and closes, pretty brilliant and interesting to think about, like as an autism story, I guess. So it's a different way. Do you guys know what I'm talking about here? True. Well, obviously this is something he picked up again, even with the the time travel and the, the kind of in, in Martian time slip. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Very yeah, similar it's actually yeah, theme similar. where you have a, a kid and the question is how do you institutionalize him? How do you get him to function in this frontier environment? And going and dropping yeah. him off at a and school. There's actually, right? I think cleansing is kind of a part of Martian time slip as well, where the there is uh, it's it's I think it's a major point in the novel, but it's it's not like the thing people focus on all that much. And that is Earth is thinking of basically eradicating all the mutants and post-humans who have emerged on Mars. Right. And that's, I think that decision actually comes down, right. They're going to liquidate these schools Mm. and, and murder all these kids. Right. Yeah. The, the, the plots are very different, but the, the background is, is kind of similar. And, and uh, I guess it's told from a different point of view as well. There's, there's a, Mm -hmm. there's sort of a two levels to this story. There's the, the global intrigue part of the story. And then there's the personal. And I think the way it ends with it, you know, him getting his wife back, which is, I mean, didn't his son just turn into a God? Is that, isn't that basically he turned into a God? That's it. He, he knows everything, explains everything and he can do everything. And he can move so, pieces. Of, like I was thinking a lot about that, just- uh, that story, um, adjustment bureau. You guys yes. know that Philip K. Dick story, right? Or no, it's adjustment team. Adjustment team is the story. Bureau's the movie. Um, and the, the fact that, you know, they gotta manipulate this to move the chess piece around and most people won't notice. And then history will go the right way or, or one of the futures will go the right way. And in fact, uh, there's a, There's a, a, I, I think a lot of arrows could point to this story from a whole lot of stuff. Like, um, you guys all watched, uh, the last Avengers movie, Endgame, right? When yeah. Doctor Strange yes. disappears at the end of, I don't know, whatever, uh, Infinity, in, Infinity Box War, Infinity War, um, he disappears and he's, he's gonna go check it all out. Basically, th- that's the way they get from, uh, Infinity War to Endgame, right? Is he just looks at all the different futures and then says, yeah, I'll do it this way, right? Um, so that kind of picking and choosing of timelines and knowing where all the pieces are and, and the fact that he gives his father back his wife, even though, uh, for everyone else, it, she's still alive, right? She's alive in all the mm-hmm. other timelines. It, it is kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm a I'm a distant and arbitrary god. However, you're my dad, so I'm going to help you out here. 
there's a, it's a very personal touch to it, but where does that leave everything? Right. Um, it doesn't help, uh, pour a big noodle. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's very selfish. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think there, there is a, a, a allegorical aspect. Well, I, I do think anyhow, even if uh, John W. Campbell, it's true he's not a, a fascist, by looking at his ideas in this other way, um, uh, Philip K. Dick is putting out that there's something just naive and, as you said, stupid about taking uh, this idea of the Superman as somebody who's going to be good to everyone instead of be bad to everyone. But there's a, a thing I, I wanted to ask um, uh, Evan. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was on the podcast you said – um, that you don't know, uh, or we don't know what, um, uh, Philip K. Dick's, um, uh, image of revolution was that was it more the Soviet type or, or the, um, uh, well, I, I, this is the thing I struggle with Philip Dick throughout his writing actually is there, there seems to be an element of, of resistance in a lot of his novels, especially in his early stuff from the fifties. I mean, he gets a little bit more pessimistic later on, but even in works like Our Friends from Frolox 8, you have, that's one of the better books looking at a resistance movement, actually a fairly well-developed one, even though they kind of appear just to be drug dealers. I mean, that's kind of the motif he uses for the resistance movement there, but there's still a movement and it's a real threat to the state. But still, the savior comes from some kind of, in that case, it's an alien who kind of comes and saves the day. But that comes by destroying the post-humans entirely. Our friends from Frolox 8. I mean, they're, it's, it's by obliterating the post-humans that, that there's some kind of new balance is made. Well, I I was thinking, Um, my point is I just don't, don't feel like often his, his novels where there is kind of a, 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 authoritarian state of some sort and then there's some movement or some way that system breaks down sometimes it's from within usually in the early novels the resistance comes from within the institution itself but that's that's kind of where the novel ends like in the simulacrum or the world jones made it kind of just ends with the fall of the state so you never really get this vision of a post-revolutionary society what that would look like i have the uh this year too actually you don't know what's coming after is is Proxima going to get independence? What will that society look like? Will the fair, so it's Fairchild, right? He's the liberal. Fairchild, yes. Yeah. Is the his liberal. vision going out or, or what? It's, there, there's a bit of vagueness about what happens after these, these conflicts. I, I, maybe he's just not interested in that or he's too, I mean, in his time, actual existing revolutions didn't turn out that well. Yes, but I, I wanted to, uh, I thought that there could be a parallel between the post-humans um, uh, would correspond to um, approach to revolution, would correspond to the, uh, the Soviet revolution, where you seize hold of the means of production and the, the power apparatus. That's what they want to do. They want to take power. And um, the meta-humans, that is to say those who could travel in time, are more like... Um, uh, the Maoist idea, because the Maoist idea is by uh, the will, you don't seize hold of the means of production, you create the new means of production. So it seemed to me that he was toying with both ideas in the, 
yeah. in the story. But there's another level of revolution that I think is strong in here, and that this gets to the political dimensions of the book or the story. And that's the like the post-colonial or the anti-imperial revolution. Because you have a lot of that in his stories as well, where the colonies have some conflict with the, the home country, right? And he's writing at a time when European empires are, are breaking down and you have various resistance movements of many different types. And one thing I thought was interesting in this story is you got like Fairchild, who's got a vision of, of something more of a civic colonial nationalism, right? Where we all like the normals and the size and the precogs and all the different post-humans can kind of create a multicultural prosperous society. And then you have what really are more akin to ethno-nationalists in the Reynolds say that, no, we got to have kind of genetic purity and, and, you know, purge all these old elements from earth, create a, you know, the, the kind of the more than the Nazi ethno-nationalist model. But both of those certainly exist in the post-colonial struggles. You know, like, in Indian Congress Party, for instance, trying to say, well, we can work out a kind of a Hindu, Muslim, secular state, right? And then you had the Muslim League, which rightfully was, was skeptical of that. And then, you know, I think Chinese nationalism, despite Maoism, by and large, was an ethno-nationalist movement. So I think that tension is going on here. And, and that's maybe even more so than the Soviet revolution. There's a lot of anti-colonial stuff in his work in this period of time. I, uh, I had, um, I wanted to, we've done so many Philip K. Dick novels. They all sort of blend together. Um, I, I went back and looked and I have the, I think this is from the inside of the, the paperback, you know, to try and tease you to buy the book. It says, um, uh, theme, Earth is invaded by aliens whom the great majority of people welcome. Locus of action, Earth in 2190. Situation, within the last century, two types of human beings have arisen as uh, sport mutations desired and preserved until 2085. They filled the top levels of business organizations, and in a planet-wide federal government, all persons who pass civil service tests must be either new men or unusual. Now, in our story here, um, I, I believe on Wikipedia they got it backwards. They said mute uh, was short for um, normals, <laughs> people without psi powers. I think it's short for mutants, right? Philip Kiddick is not explicit there, but I think it's implicit that that's what it means. Mute is mutants. And then the norms are the the people without psi powers, right? And the, the, the mom and dad are precocks, right? So they go to the dinner party. Um, and they, they anticipate they're, they're going to have a fight. And I said, well, if you anticipate, somebody at the party says, if you anticipate you're going to have a fight, why can't you stop it? I said, oh, we need, it needs a lot of energy to stop, <laughs> to stop having a fight. <laughs> and so the, that, that was sort of the, I mean, it's not directly co comedic because I, I just think it's a funny situation that Philip K. Dick is, is, is actually going to a dinner party with his wife who he's been fighting with a lot lately. And they bring in their kid, and the kid's acting weird. And they say to the kid that that opening, um, let's see if I can find it. Um, basically, you got to try and act normal, kid. <laughs> Keep an objective perspective. That's right. Tim, say hello to people. Try to hold an objective orientation, his father added gently, at least for the this evening, the end of the party. Um, 
And, and what's funny is he says an objective orientation. How old is Tim? He's like eight or six, something like that, right? Um, but, but in fact, he can't keep an objective uh, orientation because he sees people as blotches of color and a cacophony of, yeah, of noise. He has trouble assembling even uh, objects and people into objects. So that would be um, a, a philosophical objective orientation that he can't uh, manage because, in fact, he's seeing people sort of as uh, blobs in, in, in uh, spread out in space-time. He's already getting um, that perception of his time travel ability yeah. phase. But it, what, what's so funny to me is that, like, a minute later, the dad is mad at Fairchild, or maybe it's the, the, the couple are mad at Fairchild because he's he's got this very clunky robotic speech that's um going to try and convince the the earthians not to uh uh participate in the recolonization of their colony right <laughs> he's isn't trying to keep a objective uh perspective um but these are being going to be picked up by children right this is again the same kind of plot that you see in in war game and a bunch of other or even um What's the the one set in California where everybody's playing Monopoly? <laughs> for for game actual players of, yeah, game play, game players of Titan, right? Um, yeah, that is it, the, it, this kind of tricky. we're going to subvert. Uh, games are serious, is what he's saying, right? Like this is <laughs> this is um, uh, so it's really interesting because if that's true, if games are serious. Um, and then the kid grows up and he talks about, um, taking pieces off the, all the pieces are always on the board, right? Um, and then putting for you the pieces off the board, but for me, it's always on the board. Um, the whole game, I can run it backwards and forwards. And now he wants his, he wants to give his dad what his dad wants, right? Which is to give his wife back. And so he's, he really is a, he really is acting like a god there in the same way that it'd be like you and, uh, well, both of you and me playing, um, a Monopoly and you're losing. So I give you money out of the bank. It's just not, it's not in the rules. You can't do that. Right. Or we're playing chess and, uh, you lose your queen and I say, Oh, it's okay. I'll give it back to you. <laughs> just that's not how it works. Right. If, if games are serious. Like he says, you know, mm-hmm. he seems to be implying that they're, they're, they're some sort of model for reality. Um, cheating well, is acting if, like a god. And imagine your queen like burns when, when, when they take your queen. Sorry? Go ahead. No, another story that Dick wrote, Small Town, which I, I don't know if he wouldn't call it a game, but it's this kind it's of a model, absolutely. Disgruntled, disgruntled you know husband you know dick's classic character but he after work every day he goes down to his basement to make a like a train set or basically a model of the town and he ends up being essentially a god too who can mm-hmm. remake the town as he wishes it's just yeah, so, you know the, 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 the guy who has his mortgage you just delete him and you know make yeah, yourself i, I don't into, like all these casinos and, and, and mm-hmm. uh bars I, i'm gonna make a you know and and the thing is is he's thinking really hard about this stuff so when when he says um, I'm going to do this, 
the consequences are, are great. And it goes, it, it's, it's a sort of a really interesting theme that goes through all his stuff. There's that, um, novel where the Hindu gods are, are sort of co- combating o- over what the town's going to be like, right? What's that one called? Cosmic puppets. Cosmic puppets, right? Um, There's our last gods, I think. Right, right, right. And then, um, even uh, the one with the Bevatron where <laughs> they all mold the world into, <laughs> In what's that one called? <laughs> you, you seem to have these. Uh, I in the sky. I in the sky. Right. They have a. Uh, you know. They they mold reality. So uh, I, I don't like to think about sex. So now nobody has any genitals. <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> okay. Um. So uh, this is uh, what's to me the way this story works best is not thinking about the revolutionary part because, uh, it's just like I I just want to say well. The last time you had a colonial situation like this, right, was, I, I was like, I'm, I'm, I live in Canada, so I, I don't quite grasp the Americans, uh, psyche, but, um, the, there was a revolution against a king in England, right? <laughs> we were talking before the show about, uh, background for Christian, Christianity in countries where that's not the dominant, right? You know, who's Jesus and what is his story, right? So, I'm going to tell you the outside perspective on how the Americans had <laughs> their revolution, right? What they did was they, they had this, they were a colony and then they rebelled or revolted against the king and became an independent country. And then, uh, fast forward a couple hundred years later, um, there's another country in Europe that does that. Uh, it's called Russia <laughs> and they rebel against their king and uh, have a revolution. Um, and the Americans hate that. So they, <laughs> I'm like, what? Why did they do that? Um, because there's, there's, there's like a sort of a lack of recognition, like, oh, this is a kind of a similar situation. The oppressive government was kind of like, there's nothing, there's nothing going on there. So when he's dealing with this, like there's this repressive government, all I can think of is, is John W. Campbell. <laughs> is that he says, I need stories about, um, mutants, more mutants. <laughs> And, and, and yet I'm not gonna, uh, all mutants are positive mutants. And, uh, but I, what I think it, you know, Dick only sold one story to John W. Campbell, right? It was called Imposter. Um, great story, but, uh, it doesn't have any mutants in it. <laughs> so what I think is like, if you were in the room long enough with John W. Campbell and you had your arguments really well marshaled, uh, you could convince him and then he, he would, totally change direction and become a, a follower and believer because that's sort of what happened, right? Uh, L. Ron Hubbard comes in with a terrible idea <laughs> and says, I have a new uh, way of solving my own mental problems. Um, I use these two metal cups and <laughs> you it up with this battery <laughs> and now my brain is better. <laughs> John W. Campbell says, of course, all the things we did with the physics we're now going to do with the mind. Oh, terrible and so you get magazines like um like galaxy and uh if and uh a dozen other little magazines that are all like no that's not the way we're going we're going a different direction um and philip k dick is saying well i don't have a problem with mutants because my own son is a mutant that's my theory <laughs> and uh it's, it's causing trouble in my life um, so I, I need to think about this. And so I'm going to think about it. And this is what I've done. And then he publishes this story. 
I think he sort of goes both ways on you. Yes, he, he does. He did write The Golden Man. And you have Reynolds, and you have this warning that if the pretend Superman in, in Nazi Germany were that bad, imagine what the real Superman could do. Um, and actually, there's a, a TV show just came out based on the comic, The Boys. I watched right, that. Right. Oh, yes. Over the and that's kind of saying this, you know, that's... They're just dickish humans who, just because they're superpower, doesn't mean they're not going to stop being dicks and selfish and petty. Um, but, you know, still pretty nasty and, and dangerous. Yeah, um, and they're mutants but too, right? In this story, you have a little bit of the other way too. Like, you mentioned it before with the precogs, realize, the precog married couple realizing they're going to fight. Um, there you start to get more towards the mundane mutant which Dick also was very interested in. He, he wrote a story called, I think it's Captain Market, where mm-hmm. someone has this ability and she ends up using it just to make money off some stranded spaceman um, in another timeline somewhere. Sure. She just travels to them. and There's going to be a nuclear sucks. war, and, and she yeah. knows about it, so she sells the people the things they need. Um, yeah. yeah so it's, it's, Instead it's, of doing something to stop a nuclear war, to do something really profound. And that kind of bothered me when I read those stories originally. Is yeah, I think it is supposed to bother you. Yeah. Post-humans doing anything impressive with their ability. And I think it's because he really does see a danger there. But the, in, in like the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, the very first scene is two precogs hooking up. And he wakes up. He was, he was like a he was drunk. And he didn't remember the night before. And he asks his... I think it's his shrink, his mechanical computer shrink. He has like, what happened last night? And the computer says, well, you, both of you realize you're going to sleep together eventually. So you just went ahead and did it. <laughs> that, that, that also then, happens in. When you uh, find out what those, what those precogs do in that novel is their job is to figure out what the next fashion is. The, in Galactic Pot so they they, company. they're on the airplane they a, they're or the spaceship. Produce the next fad. It's. And I think I, I don't know. It just seems Dick's playing with both sides of the spectrum of the posthuman. One is totally mundane, just normal people doing what people do, but they just have these powers. And the other is like the Golden Man, where he really has a really existential threat to humanity. Something so different. Something like what Reynolds seems seems to think the the, the mutants are. Really, the next stage. Uh, that well, uh, oh sorry, I just want to throw in that in Galactic Pod Healer, they there's a machine that they use on the. I, I keep thinking of it as an airplane, but it's actually a spaceship. Um, and the it's it's you know put your hook your brain up to this and and to see if you're, you're compatible and says oh we're compatible we might as well have sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I think there's a in the story it begins with um. Uh, team seeing the the others. Mm. I think it has a cap- capital O, and the others are uh, um, more different from humans, as we learn at the end, than the the mutants are. So that's why I would say the mutants are just ordinary post-human, and the others are, are meta-human. And the the parallel I would make um, is by a detour. Um, 
I know it's bad to read um, Frank Herbert after um, <laughs> Dune Messiah, or maybe even that is bad. Yeah. But um, with um, God Emperor of Dune and, and uh, Leto, right. and for several books, one of his big genetic projects is creating um, uh, people who are invisible to um, precognition. Mm-hmm. Because if he can... Um, uh, uh, See what they're going to do. The um, the artificial intelligences that have not been destroyed but are waiting outside in the galaxy somewhere could um, reintroduce a, a tyranny of um, uh, predicting and and synchronizing. They're called the synchronized worlds, I think. Synchronizing people, and um, for me, that's already anticipated in the. Um, uh, the Dick story because um, the metahumans are doing what um, God Emperor Leto uh, was doing. They're, they're favorizing um, the um, creation of anti psi talents because the psi talents on the allegorical level, one thing is is just banally um, profiling people, um, including them in statistics to know who, who they will fall in love, uh, love with, what sort of disease they'll have, um, what sort of um, uh, career uh, they'll have. All that um, is um, included in the balance of power that you've got there with the the precogs and the telepaths, um, they can sort of short circuit each other out. And then you, um, the metahumans want to favor, not for the whole human race, but they want to favor the creation of people who are immune to and who um, um, uh, blur um, or block the um, uh, psionic powers. So that's creating people who are um, unpredictable by the ordinary algorithms and by the the super new uh, psionic algorithms. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really interesting you bring up Dune because, um, of course, it was published in Astounding and uh, it has everything that that um, that Campbell was looking for. Right, that, that these superhumans are going to be wonderful and they're going to have superpowers. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe he wasn't cool with the idea of it's all mushrooms <laughs> to get those powers. And, uh, but, uh, or maybe he didn't like yoga. I, I have no, no idea. I, I think June is on the surface that it's got to be wonderful, but he's already deconstructing it. Right. Because, uh, the, that's Paul the thing, is, right? Is, is, he, is that worse than Hitler? So, like, uh, saying that galaxy is a reaction to astounding, um, Alfred Bester, which, uh, we, haven't talked about yet but this is very much uh, you mentioned it in your show uh evan um babylon 5's psychor right that i used to think it yeah, was all alfred the genealogy of that is i thought i used to know, think sure it was all alfred Bester, this, but but you know it's from the demolished man i thought oh it's all that but actually there's a hell of a lot of philip k dick's psychor in here uh in that psychor especially with the breeding programs and stuff um we 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 get sort of a lot more about the functionality and and that psychor rebellion that actually happens in Babylon Five. You know, like they're running things. Um, you can see that as a kind of an um, uh, the what they call uh, surveillance capitalism now, right? Where the uh, 
the corporations that su- supply uh, the CIA and the NSA with with contracts are actually the things running things because they they just have more information. They can manipulate pieces on the board a lot better and take pieces off and put pieces in and and because you don't see all the machinations of or all the hands moving on and off, right? Uh, we're just pieces on the board ourselves. Um, it's very hard to detect. And that it's there's a lot cool going on there with uh, thinking about how all of this works. So the, the plot part where there's this revolution and stuff, totally uninteresting to me, except in how it engages with other other science fiction but i think the the personal story of the this family um is is really super solid i think it's even better as a as a personal story than the than the one we get in martian time slip which is i think a very good book he's he's really um he is doing some exploration and and i don't think i don't think we would like I don't think we've had a John W. Campbell did set the table for a lot of what we see of as science fiction in this basically totally unscientific idea. Now, on the other hand, right, when they talk about their kid not being a precog, um, maybe we're just defining these terms a little bit too, uh, too, um, strongly. Because I'm a precog, right? I plan stuff out and I predict things. I'm not very good at it, right? But that's kind of what humans are good at, right? Is compared to other animals is like, okay, um, it's going to run that direction. We, we can build a fence over there, right? And that's basically how we dominate the world is by doing precognition, right? You think, okay. This is how things will probably go. We can anticipate it this way. I mean, that's the insurance industry, right? Precognition is really important. Um, and if you think of um, another uh, story coming out of uh, Astounding uh, Foundation, right? It's all about, well, let's do it on a macroeconomic scale rather than a you know, personal, you know, what, whether I'm going to fight with my wife at the party, we're going to talk about, uh, empires declining and empires rising, right? Um, if you, if you put this piece on the board and you don't spend a lot of, uh, time on your infrastructure, then your empire will decline. However, in 5,000 years, it'll be back up and running again, right? And yet all that capital, uh, that you put in 5,000 years ago means your default population is like, I'm thinking about China, right? China's on the rise. Everybody knows this now, right? Well, for a long time, China was in decline, but they had a massive population sitting there, right? They, they had lots of infrastructure. It wasn't the kind of infrastructure they, they, they're building now, but that rise and fall of empires, it's, that's what reading history is. is you just see like, oh shit, the, this empire, it, it seems to be at its peak. And then, oh shit, World War One happens, right? <laughs> wow. It's going down rapidly. Um, and then, oh, it's coming back up a little bit. No, 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 it's going back down again because that was an, you know, there, so this, um, idea of, of going to a dinner party and anticipating a, a fight with your wife. Um, I I don't have a wife, but I, I know that this stuff happens. <laughs> Even though I don't have a wife because I've anticipated very similar things. And, uh, 
uh, if you think about it that way, um, precognition, especially way, the way he defines it, right? That, yeah, we can be wrong about stuff and me telling you information about what's going to happen will change your behavior and change the outcome. It's kind of hard to falsify, right? <laughs> thinking about it that way. Um, and that I, I think is a, a large part of the problem that people had with, with, um, with studying actual, uh, parapsychology, right? Is that if you, if you don't understand how science really works in philosophy of science, uh, Terrence, you probably studied it. I studied it. I thought it was yes. incredibly important to understanding how reality works because uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Popper. Um, you know, well, well, that's it. I think I think the the precogs and the telepaths are, are Kuhnian normal science. Yes, and um, the team at the end and the others are Popperian revolutionary science. They they change the rules of the game because as, as a, a metaphor. Yes, absolutely. They we play on a th- three dimensional um, chessboard, and they can play on a four dimensional one. And a queen that was burnt on our chessboard can be brought back or a replacement um, introduced straight away or whenever they want because like in Interstellar, they're on a, a four-dimensional board. So mm-hmm. it's philosophy of science for me as well. It works uh, just as well. And it goes into – like it turns into spiritual stuff too, right? Like like uh, what – how to deal with the pain of reality and and – and uh connecting to you know god and all that stuff it's it's really interesting that he he's uh, it's almost like philip k dick isn't a science fiction writer he's a, a philosophical fiction writer it's not really a genre right that people talk about much but that's basically the way i i think of it because none of this is a is really uh you know there's no science in this story at all it's just a philosophy of science and it's a metaphor uh about like if you go to um back to the crawlers um Evan I believe that one is it's like there's a nuclear reactor nearby right and they're all mutating but um and it's causing a lot of birth defects and people just it's to do with abortion and like there's all sorts of like sort of scientific underpinnings to this I I don't think we have any is there any explanation to why everybody has psi powers on this and other planets in this story. There's hints, I think, but I don't think there's anything said directly, is there? No, not in this story. Yeah, no. and so it's just a that background assumption. Just evolution. You have, yeah, you have the new men. I mean, that has the unusuals. Those aren't explained. Those are just like these mutants. But the the new men. I think there's some effort to kind of explain those. That that's more just. The evolution of human intelligence. The right. the new men are are they the superior ones like as superior they're like as the mentats almost, but they don't have they're not on spice or whatever. They're they they reminded me of mentats. I don't know if if Dune was written before our friends from Frolox Eight or not, but they they, was, they remind me a lot like them. I was just thinking of the name Newman. N U M E N. There's a new man. N E W M A N. That's yes. But could there be a pun? Are they godlike? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. So new men and uh, new men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're just the really smart ones, though. They're the ones who have advanced intelligence. 
but they're in a conflict then with the unusuals who are like the precogs and the psychics. I want to read the opening of this story because I think it's really well written. And I think it, 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 it is, it's, it's so much about autism. Like it just. But it's incredibly philosophical in terms of the, his perception. Absolutely. So I'm going to uh, read the uh, opening couple of pages if you don't mind here. When he entered the, the apartment, a great number of people were making noises and flashing colors. The sudden cacophony confused him. Aware of the surge of shapes, sounds, and smells, three-dimensional oblique patches, but trying to peer through and beyond, he halted at the door. With an act of will, he was able to clear the blur somewhat. The meaningless frenzy of human activity settled gradually into a quasi-orderly pattern. What's the matter? His father asked sharply. <laughs> I've had that experience myself, right? You go to a party, there's a whole bunch of weirdos there. <laughs> I, this was when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> Um, this is what we per- uh, previewed half an hour ago. <laughs> so in the car on the way to this party, right? He says, you're going to meet a lot of weird people and there's going to be a lot of weird smells, son. His mother said, uh, when the eight, eight year old boy failed to answer, I wish you'd let me get a corpsman to probe him. Right? So then this great line is so interesting. I don't fully trust the core and we have 12 years to handle this ourselves. If we haven't cracked it by then. So at age 20, uh, something happens. The corpsman comes in and, right? It, so your kid is going to be taken away. Uh, there is a story, uh, I don't, I don't know if I've heard your show on it, Evan, but I, I think about it a lot. It's called Progeny. You remember that? Yeah, one? that's the, one of the robots take the kids, right? That's right. The, and this is father, the father has, difficulty relating to the son um and he goes off to it's almost like a military camp um a residential school sort of thing this is that's why i think it really happened right like they had to decide whether to send the kid away to this special school right it it just comes up again and again and again and again um uh later she bent down and ordered in a crisp tone. Go on in, Tim. Say hello to people. Try to hold an objective orientation. <laughs> His father added gently, at least for the this evening to the end of the party. Tim passed silently through the crowded living room, ignoring the various oblique shapes. His body tilted forward, head turned to one side. Neither of his parents followed him. They were intercepted by the host and then surrounded by Norm and Psy guests. So... We're keeping a very tight, um, like, who's saying Norman's, I guess? I think that that's the eight-year-old boy understanding that those are Norman's, I guess, right? So there's an objective narrator here, but we're keeping close to the mind. This is, I don't, I don't know what narrative style this is called, but this is Philip K. Dick's style. I really find it very interesting to think about. We keep going here. In the melee, the boy was forgotten. He made a brief circuit of the living room, satisfied himself that nothing existed there, <laughs> and then sought a side hall. A mechanical attendant opened a bedroom door for him, and he entered. So robots everywhere, right? Uh, the bedroom was deserted. The party had only begun. He uh, So that line, I was like, what does that mean? Are they going to go in there and have sex? Think about that. The bedroom was deserted. The party had only begun. 
What they haven't is this a key party where everybody come, comes in and swaps <laughs> wives? Why is that line in there? Okay. He allowed the voices and movement behind him to fade into an indiscriminate blur. Faint perfumes of women drifted through the swank apartment, carried by the warm, Terran-like artificial air pumped from the central ducts of the city. He raised himself up and inhaled the sweet scents, flowers, fruits, spices, and something more. He had to go all the way into the bedroom to isolate it. There it was, sour, like spoiled milk, the warning he counted on. And it was in the bedroom. I'm like, at this point, what's going on? Cautiously, I, I felt like, oh, this is the father thing situation or something. Uh, cautiously, he opened a closet. The mechanical selector, again, another robot, right? Tried to present him with clothing, but he ignored it. With the closet open, the scent was stronger. The other was somewhere near the closet, if not actually in it. Under the bed, he crouched down and peered, not there. He lay outstretched and stared under Fairchild's metal work desk, typical, typical furniture of colonial officials' quarters. Here the scent was stronger. Fear and excitement touched him. He jumped to his feet and pushed the desk away from the smooth plastic surface of the wall. The other clung against the wall in dark shadows where the desk had rested. So uh, that's the end of the first uh, two pages. And... I think this it sets up so much stuff for what goes on later. Um, and then we get this stuff about the left and the right. It's completely baffling and very hard to follow. But once you get the reveal, right? Oh, it's like, oh, left is like left on the timeline. Right is right on the timeline. Left is the beginning, you know, far left is the beginning of the timeline. Far right is the end of the timeline. All makes sense. And uh, so it is actually really incredibly well written and very interesting. But setting it up this way, where he's got uh, no interest in in um, there's nothing in the right. This is how I felt when I my parents go to parties at some at somebody else's house. I think Evan, you said it was at their house. It's it's definitely a stranger's house, right? Yeah. Um, and it's not a house that says an apartment, but it's the same idea. You, you show up at a stranger's house. There's a whole bunch of adults at the party. You're a kid. <laughs> what do you do? You wander around looking for something interesting, right? Um, and this kid, <laughs> whatever it is, it's like a fucking ghost that he's been haunted by before. It's everywhere. It follows him around. Fucking freaky, man. No wonder he acts so weird. <laughs> it's uh, an other. It's, it's numinous. It can phase into existence. Mm. And to um, uh, give pleasure to um, Evan, it's the equivalent of Valus later on. <laughs> That's anti-pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sigh and anti-sigh. Um, Valus is the anti-surveillance society. Right, right. Well... Uh, it, I was thinking more Ubik though. Um, like Ubik, I, I really love this novel. It's in, in part because it's it's two separate stories, right? The first half is like a psi versus anti psi mm. high spy kind of thriller. That's what you think you're getting, and then of course you get the the weird stuff in the in the second half. But uh, those anti psi are very important in that that novel. That, I, that, it's very Dan interesting to make that comparison. I hadn't thought of that before, but of course that 
that Ubik stuff is about, you know, turning things that were dead into things that were alive or rev- right in the same way that the, I think of her as the witch in this story, right? That he goes to off in the woods and she, he gives, he gives her a token or something after she gives some advice. He wants to get his wife back. Um, by the way, that, uh, the fact that the, the party has just started. So the bedroom's not occupied yet. Um, is it such a surprise, uh, later on that we find out he's been cheating on his wife? Um, if that's the fucking party that they were going to, now she's mad at him and she's uh, like, well, you're not supposed to bring them home. (laughs) Oh man. I, maybe, maybe that, um, that stuff. I mean, it's definitely in there. I'm not crazy. Right. He's, he's, I mean, it's, uh, there literally is some cheating going on. So, uh, the fact that he sets it up that way and that makes this party like, it's a revolutionary part. Like, what kind of party is is this an analogy for, right? Because uh, I was uh, thinking uh, th- he's he's written a bunch of stories where there's a a bunch of crazy people who are going to set up their own society. What, what's the one with the the frenet? Uh, I don't know. A whole bunch of different kinds of uh, clans. Clans of the Clans of the Alphane Moon. Right. Right. So clans of the Alphane Moon whole bunch of different kind of crazy people and they're all going to get their society running all perfectly right and and we don't need those uh it's like uh these are a whole bunch of patients of a psychiatrist getting together at a party and saying yeah we don't need that we don't need to have have the psychiatrist tell us how to run things we can run our own lives um meanwhile it's interesting that they're it's an arranged marriage right right like they're both precogs, so they're put together to produce a, a super precog, right? Which they they do where they, you know, they, it is successful in a way, but not in a way that the state intended. But maybe the, these kind of key parties are, are all part of the plan in the way of uh, the game players. Cause right. They're, it's essentially a wife's, wife swapping world, right? Because mm-hmm. when they're playing the game, what they're gambling is their property, but also their wives, right? And every time, you know, you lose land, you also get a new wife, and people have been married 20 times, but that's for fertility, right? It's a way to kind of spread the, the DNA around. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I want to talk about Big Noodle for a minute. <laughs> um, the reason uh, I want to talk about Big Noodles, I want to ask is, uh, he is he called Big Noodle because he's like a big wet noodle, or is he called Big Noodle because he's got a big brain? Um there's a picture of him on page uh, 21 of the PDF. Um, it's not exactly how he's pictured in my mind in the in the story. However, um, I was thinking like he had no bones. <laughs> but, um, and that yeah, was part a, of the mutation. Impression. Yeah, and 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 the problem with that that he has no bones is I I think. I think the reason he's like that is because he has the power of uh, telekinesis and teleportation. He can, he doesn't have to get up, right? So he wants a snack. Um, he doesn't have to get, you know, go to the store. It just appears, right? Um, is that why he's, he's a big, he's a big blob? Is that, is that the lodge behind it? Or is he, is he like sort of one of these, uh, characters from, from uh, the crawlers like just that's part of the mutation process is some bodily mutation because i think all the rest of the mutations are are mental right you just you're a weird kid or 
or you can predict the future because you write science fiction, <laughs> or you, uh, or you, what's some of the, oh, and the anti-science aspect. Yeah. I think it's his, 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 his allegory for the, the defense department, just a big fat bloated uh. <laughs> institution that just sits there and, and thinks it's the most important thing in the, in the society. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, he literally is the defense department. That's pretty funny. <laughs> I never, I, I hadn't considered that, but he literally is, right? That's his job is to throw, uh, to defend missiles and stuff. Um, yeah, and the kind of the way he talks is like, I can get you anything. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so when when is uh, Eisenhower's speech? Because it's uh, around this time, right? Mm-hmm. October fifty four. When because that uh, that was something I think he took to heart, right? Philip K. Dick. Yeah, that might be a bit early for this speech. Wasn't that later in his term? He was he was president until nineteen sixty one. Wow. Well, Kennedy was elected in 60, so it would have been January. Yeah, it's just I always think of it. um, Yeah, that's crazy. I always think of him as as in black and white, right? Yeah, to Mm -hmm. 61. Holy cow. Yeah. It's for a couple weeks. Yeah, so 53 to 61, yeah. So he's just anticipating it. He's precogging it, of course. (laughs) Um, but we, we, I think we touched on this idea of anti-psi, um, uh, in other stories as well, but I was thinking, um, this, before no, this also got into that Philip K. Dick Electric Dreams, I think, I think it was in the hood maker. Yeah. The episode, not the book, not the story. The That's story right. didn't have anti-psi, I don't think, but yeah. they took this idea and put it into that TV show. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, but uh, as the real life analogy, right? This is—I I think I, I talked about this before. It's the—it's—it's uh, it's like me talking to uh, Julie Davis. I, I come up with this really elaborate, crazy theory, and then she says, "No." Nope. <laughs> just like, "Oh yeah, oh, this is very wow." And so you put this here, and then no, <laughs> it just shuts the, shuts down the whole collapses the whole thing, right? So Philip K. Dick is uh, busy typing on his typewriter. Imagine if the ants. Are talking about me <laughs> and he's typing and the spiders they're on the opposite team and the birds they're up in the tree and they're just watching they're, they're, they both and then i die <laughs> and that's the story called expendable right <laughs> and then he he if he was in the middle of that uh that experience and then the wife that's the anti-psi comes in she says no <laughs> And this whole world collapses, right? Um, because if you, if you do, you know, if you're working on a, um, an idea and it's not fully gelled yet, it's very easy to break it, right? It's very easy to break the idea or an essay, right? If you say, Oh, that's what you wrote? That's terrible. But I'm not finished. I was oh <laughs> now it's ruined, well, right? I think we talked about this with misadjustment. Yes. Because they're the anti size or all women. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about this, that Dick's writing all these ideas down and then the the, the, the women just block it. I think there there must have been a wife who was like that, or a girl yeah. who was who was yeah, just you know, not not 
kind of the opposite of Tessa, right? <laughs> it's Cleo. It's definitely Cleo. Yeah, okay. Because she was the wife through all of this. Because Anna was, I think, more sympathetic to his career. Mm-hmm. And, and more encouraging of it. It's, it's very interesting because I think of, uh, you know, there's uh, the Boing Boing's uh, motto, I think, is Happy Mutants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we're all mutants and... And that's right. I mean, literally, mutation is what what uh, a genetic uh, a sexual selection, right, is important to keep us alive. So we don't we aren't a monoculture, but also um, mutations in there too. And and so yeah, this Homo superior, a Homo, uh, um, what did you you call them? Metahumans, posthumans, and then metahumans, right? Yes, yes, I was trying to make a difference between the two. See, I don't make it. I, I, I think metahumans would make well, not metahumans, meta beings, right? Um, God-like creature that can see reality outside. Um, absolutely, a time traveler would be like that mm-hmm. in a certain sense, right? Yes, he's at a, a meta level. He can right. do things that on the board can't be done. Or like uh, that. Um, uh, all you zombies by Heinlein, right? This got turned yes. into that movie, Predestination. Um, which it, or the big time by Fitzleiber. Right, right. Well, yeah, I don't think they're all their own grandpa there, but um, they are. Uh, but they're outside. Um, that's right. Uh, time and I think there's a notion that you know um, the Korzybski, uh thing that um, animals are space binding and humans. What makes them special? They're time binders hmm. and. Um, I always thought that he needed to complete that and science fiction completed it in saying the the next level will be possibility binders mm. that you can bring together different possibilities. So um, there's a sort of feminist equivalent of, of what you were saying there about the, the, the wife who destroys the good ideas. There's um, a, a, a novella, um, I think it's very recent, by... Charlie Jane Anders called Six Months, Three Days, mm-hmm. where there's a man, there are two precogs. Um, the man sees the future as um, just one path, it's, it's certain, and he knows everything that's going to happen, maybe not always in, the, in detail. And um, he meets and falls in love with a woman who sees the future, but in terms of possibilities, if you do this, this will happen if you do something else, uh, something different will happen. And the struggle is she sees lots of possibilities, but when he sort of insists and says, no, no, uh, you'll do this, I'll do this, this will happen, this will happen, and she loses all her sense of possibilities <laughs> for um, uh, uh, a bad phase of her life, and then um, she gets back um, uh, her sense of possibilities and she, well, I can't say the end, but she seems to Spoiler have some sort of effect. She has some effect on, on the guy because you want to, you really want me to spoil I it? I do, yes. Um, I forget the exact detail, but um, I think he falls off his bike and he, at the beginning, he says, you know, I, I fall off my bike and I, I hurt my, my legs. And um, at the end, because she does something different, he falls off his bike and he, uh, she pushes him in the other direction and he hurts his hands 
and well, something like that. That might not be the exact detail. And he he says, um, "You see, I was right because <laughs> I always told you I was going to um, ah. hurt my hands." So nice. uh, she shunted him into another possibility when he denied the um, uh, idea that there was any gaslighting as than- reality chain- bending, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> nice. That's good. Thank you. I don't have to read that story now. Well, there you are. I will appreciate that. It's, it's like Francis Fukuyama, all the you know, <laughs> talking throughout the nineties, right? That there's there's no more future, right? There's only the end of history. Capitalism. That's the only thing we have. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't, uh, I, can't, I can't team with you on this, Evan. That this is a quote unquote masterpiece, <laughs> if that's the word you actually used. Because I, I I went and searched for it. It's an I think episode fifty seven of your um, uh, Philip K. Dick book. book, uh, book. I, say, I really like this story though. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's good I, uh, I, good stuff I in it for sure, and it's good writing all over the place in it. I don't know. I talk up his his mutant stories. That it's a, it's an interesting theme. I I just didn't really. I didn't connect to it before, but there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff going on. And I, I do like thinking about that. Like his theory on autism is probably not what's going on. <laughs> he never uses the word autism in here, but that's, that's what I, I just like. Oh, is this, that's why this kid walks into the room and he doesn't see things, uh, the way the parents want him to see things, right? Um, well, he's got two theories, doesn't he? Uh, one, they're just um, totally open to all sense data, and they can't organize them into objects the way do. Oh, you mean the, the way real we life do. Or, or Philip K. Dick? Uh, this is Philip K. Dick's theory of autism. Okay, yeah. As in the story, that mm-hmm. they are bombarded by sensory uh, sense data. They can't organize it into um, objects. Um, the way we do, right. and that organization is a little arbitrary. And the second uh, theory of autism is they're seeing, maybe it's linked to that, other aspects of the world that we can't see. So they're, they're not stupid, they're just cognitively different. It's, it's made much more explicit in, um, in Martian Time Slip because we see from the boy's point of view that he sees them as as how they will be when they're dead basically he sees that entire or at least their end end point as well as their uh, their regular now so it's like um <laughs> you're at the chapel you're getting married and you look at your beautiful wife and she's a skull right <laughs> and you say yep she's going to be dead soon or she's going to be dead and i'm going to think about this a lot it's like wow no wonder you're so <laughs> depressy <laughs> Um, but no, when she's a skull, you can you can see her a beautiful bride. Uh, oh no, you can see. Yeah, well, yeah. But then you've you? got this. You've got this uh, a vision of of the skull beneath the face, right? Yes. And and you, I mean that's why that's why I ha- I don't have it on my desk for some reason. I have a little skull that I keep on my desk. You know that memento mori idea. Um, yes. Just uh, just ha- I don't. Uh, that's probably why I'm in such a bad headspace right now. Is I don't have my little skull on my desk. Um, if I have my little skull on my desk, even though I'm not thinking actively about death, it's always there to remind me, right? And, and that aiming towards 
um, uh, not, I mean, what, having it there is kind of a, a totemic way of having constantly in your, in your mind, um, uh, limit, limitation and, uh, um, uh, it's, uh, I don't want to get too deep into it cause it's a life philosophy and stuff, but <laughs> it's important. I think yeah, it's, 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 get into it. well, I, I was just thinking about in, in, uh, my favorite of his galactic pot healer. He's always talking about the tomb world. It comes up in a whole bunch of things, right? As, and these, these dead versions of ourselves later. Here he's managed to, um, he says, yeah, people die. Um, but then, um, your son, God can come sweeping in and give you people back. But uh, what's next, right? The, what, when she dies again later on, is he going to come back and say, oh, okay, you can have her again? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Um, and that's why, Stories can be beautiful like that, where you, you, I mean, Philip K. Dick is the master of setting up um, something at the beginning and fi- uh, tying it all together at the end. He, he can he can make a, a sort of a rambling, crappy story really good by having those threads run through and get all tangled up, and then come back and be united with the beginning. And that he's done that here, but in real life, <laughs> there is no beginning of the story and the end of the story. There's just the beginning of a story within a larger i don't want to say tapestry because that makes it sound like somebody's weaving it it's just shit happening right well isn't the mundane allegory if you take away the omniscience and the godlike powers um uh with an act of will you can make a difference it's not all fatality Mm. it's not all just shit happens that's that's the entropy side and but by an act of will or an act of vision or an act of creativity, you can um, inject at some moments anti-entry into the system. Or, or you can just like yeah. act like Cornell West all the time and be be super positive, uh, even though <laughs> even though you know, like I I don't think I don't think you actually have to believe it, right? You just have to to act it. In a certain sense, right? It isn't about belief; it's about about action, and it's it's really interesting to think about that because I don't. Uh, is this even a science fiction story? It has planets, and it has is set in the future, I guess. Right? There's no science in it. Right? It's it's some sort of meta fantasy um, exploration of philosophical ideas. And bullshit science fiction ideas. And yet it works somehow. It's pretty good. Do either of you remember the the very end of the Martian time slip? Because you have a very similar thing with the mm-hmm. older version of the son coming back and visiting the father mm-hmm. for that personal moment. He, he doesn't restore anything in Martian time. I'm trying to remember what the full significance of that return that. is. But it certainly is a – he doesn't have to – it's the same situation. He doesn't have to come back and visit his his father. But it gives him some closure. It gives him, mm-hmm. you know. Let's see. I'm going to grab the ending of Martian Time Slip and see if we can find that. Um, it comes back as this kind of weird tra- old ancient transhuman thing, right? Uh, Jack, standing by her, holding her hand, said, For what? I didn't do anything for you. 
Yes, I think so, the thing seated there nodded to the bleakman, and they pushed it and its machinery closer to Jack and straightened it so that it faced him directly. In my opinion, it lapsed into silence, and then it resumed more loudly. You tried to communicate with me many years ago. I appreciate that. It wasn't long ago, Jack said. Have you forgotten? You came back to us. It was just today. That is your distant past when you were a boy. She said to her husband, Who is it? Manfred. Putting her husband, uh, sorry, putting her hands to her face, she covered her eyes. She could not bear to look any longer. Did you escape a Amweb? Jack asked. It? Yes, it hissed with a gleeful tremor. I am with my friends. It pointed to the bleak men who surrounded it. Jack, Sylvia said, take me out of here, please. I can't stand it. She clung to him and then he led her from the Steiner house out once more into the evening darkness. Both Leo and David met them, agitated and frightened. Say, son, Leo said, what happened? What was the woman screaming about? Jack said, it's all over. Everything's okay, to Sylvia. He said, she must have run outside. She didn't understand at first. Shivering, Sylvia said, I don't understand it either, and I don't want to. Don't try to explain it to me. She returned to the stove, turning down the burners, looking into the pots to see what had burned. Don't worry, Jack said, patting her. She tried to smile. It probably won't happen again, <laughs> Jack said. But even if it does, thanks, she said. I thought when I first saw him that it was his father, Norbert Steiner. That was what frightened me so. We'll have to get a flashlight and hunt around for Erna Steiner, Jack said. We want to be sure she's all right. Yes, she said. You and Leo go and do what that while I finish here. I have to say, I have to stay with dinner or it'll be spoiled. The two men with a flashlight left the house. David stayed with her, helping her set the table. Where will you be? She wondered as she wandered, watched her son. When you're old like that, all hacked away and replaced by machinery. Oh yeah, I forgot about the machinery part. Will, will you be like that too? We are all, we are better off not being able to look ahead, she said to herself. Thank God we can't see it. I wish I could have gone out, David was complaining. Why can't you tell me what it was that made Mrs. Steiner like, yell like that? Sylvia said, maybe someday. <laughs> but no, but not now, she said to herself. It's too soon for any of us. Dinner was ready now, and she went out automatically onto the porch to call Jack and Leo, knowing even as she did so that they would not come. They were far too busy. <laughs> they had too much to do, but she called them anyhow because it was her job. In the darkness of the Martian night, her husband and father-in-law searched for M. Ernest Steiner. Their light flashed here and there, and their voices could be heard, business-like and competent and patient. Yeah, so the, the, there is a vision of uh, uh, a return like that. And uh, that's kind of like, I, I assume that Philip K. Dick is hoping that one day he'll be able to communicate with his son in a way that uh, is like, you didn't fuck up, I didn't wreck everything, you didn't wreck everything for me, I'm cool, don't worry about it. Like that. Because I think that's uh, sort of the pro uh, what a lot of um, people with autistic kids are really worried about. Right? It's like, uh, was there anything I could do better? What... What's going on here? What's going on? You know, what is it? Is it have meaning? Right? Because it, it's traumatizing. I think. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.